0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Please open your copy of God's Word to the book of the Song of Solomon. To the Song of Solomon. if you've been following along, we've been working our way through of the last several weeks through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And we're concluding that smaller series today with the Song of Solomon. We looked first at Job, then Psalms, Proverbs, and today Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, as you may know it. And these books together comprise what's commonly called as the wisdom literature. And the Song of Solomon traditionally is part of the scrolls, some of the five scrolls taken usually as a sort of poetic collection within the Old Testament. And like last week's study of Ecclesiastes, this week the Song of Solomon is going to pose a lot of different challenges, interpretive challenges, for us. Uh, You may have read the song before and have scratched your head at some of the, the language and the wording. It's a song. It's a poem, much like the Psalms may be. It's got literary elements that are often unfamiliar to our own reading. Something certainly... That seems out of step with what we normally read in scripture, didactic or uh, epistles uh, or those kinds of things. But today we're going to be looking at basically what amounts to a song or a collection of songs and love poems that have an intended purpose for God's people. Now, just by way of uh, introduction, uh, there's a lot about the Song of Solomon that I will not be getting into today. Not simply for sake of time, but I think I will end up confusing more than I will be helping if we get into it because we don't have that kind of time. So I want to encourage you, this is one of the shorter books in the Old Testament, only eight chapters. So take some time this week, read through it if you haven't already, study through it, come up with some questions and then find somebody to talk to and wrestle with those questions together. You'll find that there are some very uh, suggestive texts in there, things that I think ought to make you blush if you're, you're reading it, uh, certainly reading it with others. Uh, But there are some deeper and clearer um, things that we can begin to unearth. And so my point this morning, the goal this morning, is not to answer every question you will ever have about the Song of Solomon. I want to frame how you read the Song of Solomon in the context of what we've been studying over the last several weeks, which is the wisdom literature of God. How, How God has providently brought these books into the Bible and has preserved them for millennia for God's people so that they can learn and grow in knowledge and wisdom. So this is not a book about a couple's relationship. It's not a book about sex. It's not even a book about marriage. It's a book about love and specifically about how love leads to wisdom. And that's why I want to show for us this morning. Before we begin, let's pray and then we'll we'll look at God's word together. Father, I ask for your help just in my own attempt to communicate what is this uh, beautifully written and precious book to the saints, but often misunderstood. And Lord, in, my, in my own confession, God, uh, I, I am at a loss to, to understand and know it in its entirety. So we pray that in the remainder of the time we have this morning, both in addition to our worship, but in response to our worship, we can see within the text here something beautiful about your love Something beautiful about the expression of love within a human male and female relationship. Something beautiful about the gospel and about what you've done throughout history and have promised to do. And something beautiful about the Spirit who leads us to understand and walk in light of these truths. So we pray for your help, God, by your Spirit. To lead us, guide us, direct us, teach us, encourage us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me lay a little groundwork for the Song of Solomon. You can see there in the very first verse, the introduction says this The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, this sets up sort of the theme of the book to its readers. So, those who were to originally have read the Song of Solomon would know two things one, this is a song. And the phrase here, Song of Songs, is the same kind of phrasing that we get of the Holy of Holies, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Anytime there is a phrase like that, it's the ultimate of that thing. So when we praise God as the Holy of Holies, you think He is the most holy, or the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was the holiest place to be. Jesus is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the most kingly of that king. So this is the most an ultimate song of all songs. And it says here in English, which is Solomon's. But really the Hebrew there is of Solomon, concerning or in regard to Solomon. So we are to understand this not simply as Solomon as the author, which he may or may not have been, but in the motif or in the Solomonic wisdom that we're used to reading in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes. So Solomon famously was wise. He asked God to give him wisdom, which God granted, and he was the wisest to have ever walked the earth until Jesus came. So Solomon's wisdom is really what made him famous, as well as his fall from such wisdom which made him infamous. So the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, is really a song written in the style and in the format of the wisdom that Solomon is typically known for dispensing. So to make the most use of the Song of Solomon, you want to be familiar with the Proverbs. You want to be familiar with Ecclesiastes. And that's why it comes last in our study of the wisdom literature, because we've made our way not only through poetry within the Psalms, but we've worked a little bit with some of the the wording and the Proverbs and the wisdom that Solomon has laid out for us in both the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So know that as we study this psalm, we're we're studying this as someone who is laying down wisdom in the form of a song or poem that we, as God's people, can take in, receive, and by His Spirit, understand, translate, and obey. So what that means is, this is not just a book about relationships, though there is wisdom in the Song of Solomon that can apply to your relationships, This is not just a book about physical intimacy within the context of that relationship, though there is wisdom to be gleaned and applied within the context of a relationship regarding physical intimacy. You can't read this and avoid that. This isn't a song about marriage and how great it is and how lovely it is, though there is wisdom to be gleaned and understood and applied in the context of marriages. This isn't even a book, if I may, that's even strictly about God. For God is only sort of mentioned in passing near the end. And the kind of wisdom that's talked about here is not the kind of wisdom we see explicitly in the Proverbs or in the Psalms where wisdom is said to be the beginning of knowledge or the fear of the Lord. This is a celebration of love. And so what the Song of Solomon is, is wisdom primarily about how we are to love and what love truly consists of. How we are to love, both intimately and physically with our spouses, but what love consists of as people of love. One of the primary attributes we see extolled all throughout the the Scriptures in the Old and the New Testament is that God is a loving God, steadfast and abounding in His love. In fact, John the Apostle tells us that God is love. Now that's not to reduce his attributes to a couple of separate things like God is holy, God is love, God is true. But that his essence is love. His essence is holiness. God is love because the primary and the overarching experience of God to his people is one of love. One of holiness. One of truth. So this is a book of wisdom that deals with love. What is it? look like, and what does it consist of? And it's telling this story of wisdom using the story of a man and a woman. Both of these men and women are not named. They do not have names, although we see occasionally here Solomon is listed as a character. The woman we often just call the bride or the Shulamite, which is the female version of the name Solomon, like a Salamana, or a solomona, I don't know what the word would be there. Uh, And we see the bridegroom. And these two couples, this couple, is really the vehicle for the wisdom that our author here wants to lead us to understand. So on a first glance reading, we see that it's a story of a couple. A man and a woman who are in love, who desire one another, who come together, who seek after one another, who long for one another, who are married together, and then who praise one another and celebrate the love that they have. We see this as a beautiful telling of a love story, and it is certainly that, but it is much more than that. There are three ways that we can read the Song of Solomon, and I want you to use all three as you read it this week. Because the Song of Solomon is a bit like an onion. It has multiple layers. So the first layer would be the literal meaning Or the plain meaning of the text. And this plain meaning does have to do, obviously, with human love. Because it is a story between a man and a woman and their love for one another. So as you read it, read it with its plain meaning in front of you. This is a story about human love. But you want to read it secondly, not only as a plain reading, but also in a pictorial sense. Not only in its literal, but in its symbolic sense. It portrays a meaning beyond its literal or plain sense. It is not simply literal, it is also symbolic. In the literal sense, we're to read it as a story about human love. and We gain wisdom about human love in the plain reading of it. But in the pictorial or symbolic reading of, of the Song of Songs, we read not just human love, but divine love. We see symbolized within this couple's story and the expression of love a metaphor and an analogy for divine love. Of course, we know because Paul has also told us that the relationship between a man and his wife, this one flesh reunion has to do with divine love between Christ and the church. So insofar as human love always reveals divine love, when you read a story in its plain sense about human love, you must also read it in its symbolic sense about its divine love the two must be taken hand in hand. As every marriage reflects, whether poorly or approvingly, the divine love, so every story in the Bible that touches on human love points us to the reality of divine love. But that's only the second sense in which you must come to read the Song of Solomon in its plain or literal sense and its pictorial and symbolic sense. But third, you must read it in its prophetic sense. And by that I mean simply, you must read it in an eschatological way. Now, eschatology is the study of the last things, the end times, how all things ultimately come together at the very end. So you're to read this prophetically, not just looking at the story, but looking at where the story comes from and where it takes us. How it ultimately points us to a future of greater, fulfilling love. So in the plain sense, we see it's a story about human love. And in the pictorial sense, the symbolic sense, it's a story about divine love, But in this prophetic sense, it's not about human or divine either or, but about unified love between the human and divine. It's where both human and divine love come together and flourish in harmony and in peace. And that's the future that the Song of Solomon paints for its readers. It does this. In a way that excites the senses and arouses the imagination to see just how intense and passionate love between humans and between God and his people can be. But the point is not simply to celebrate love. But in the celebration of love, see the fulfillment of the beauty and the reality of that love as God has both promised it and will fulfill it in the future. So we're going to attempt to understand this both in its literal or plain sense in its symbolic sense, and in its prophetic sense this morning. Let me give an overview of the whole book. It's in eight chapters here, and there's really no clear narrative plot. It's not necessarily concerned with chronology or telling a story like we would understand at beginning, middle, and end. It kind of drops us in the middle of a relationship that seems to already exist, and it hops around a little bit, and it's not always clear what exactly is going on? Even with some of the other imagery and the language that's happening, it's still sometimes difficult to tell what the object is in this reference to what might be loved or who's doing the loving. It's not quite clear to us if Solomon is a third character or is really another version of the same male character that's in the story already. If these other chorus-like sisters and bride uh, uh, bridesmaids are part of this central aspect of the story, or if they're just a device used by the poet to help us understand the message. There's a lot that's unclear about this book, and it takes scholars and scholars, lots of study, to really kind of begin to understand. But the best I can do is give you an overview of the book to help us identify a structure that I think is discernible. The Song of Solomon's arranged around this desire and this pursuit of this couple that one each have for the other. And it does this sort of cyclically in, in a series of episodes in which one, usually the bride, goes and seeks, calls out for, finds, embraces, and then ultimately separates from the beloved, from the bridegroom. So there's a, a desire, there's a appraising of the other, there's a seeking, a finding, there's a time of, of embracing, and then there's a separation, and then they do it over again. Call, seek, find, embrace, and separate. And there is a structure or a pattern that can be discerned. It's not necessarily chronological, as I said, but it does present this development and this flow that we can begin to piece together. And and this flow moves towards the center of the book. You start from the beginning and away from the center of 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 the book afterwards. And the center of the book is where a marriage takes place. And then from that marriage, there proceeds this union that is pursuing a deeper and more satisfying mutual love that is expressed and celebrated together. So take a look at your scriptures and look in the first chapter. We see in verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 7, a celebration of the mutual love and desire. This is how it begins. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out and therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companion? And here he responds, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ointment, ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels." We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, he says, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, the rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and the fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me, and I assure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up love or awaken love until it pleases. This snapshot here of just this first section, we can see an expression of a mutual love, both she for him and him for her. There's a mutual love and desire both an attraction physically, but also a delight in one another that goes beyond just physical attraction. They take delight in the presence of one another. They desire to be with one another. There is a protection, a shade, a refuge, an enjoyment, and a delight in their love for one another. So in this first section here, we see a mutual love and a desire expressed for one another. In the second part of chapter 2, verses 8 through 17, we see that the bridegroom then seeks out and finds the beloved, the bride. And they come to embrace, and then they separate. We see in verse 8 that she says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills. He is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. This is a poetic way of saying that he seeks her desires her. Of course, she comes to him. They meet and embrace. And yet we see this refrain yet again, that they are to gather together and then separate once again. He says, My beloved, in verse 16, is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies and until the day, breathe and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. So as quickly as he comes They express and enjoy their love, and then he is dismissed to go again. And in the next chapter, we see in chapter three, the first five verses, this dream the bride seems to have. She says, On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I'll arise now and go about the city and the streets and the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. She runs through the street in her dreams looking for the one she loves. And as she finds him there in verse four, scarcely had I passed him when I found him my soul loves, and I held him and would not let him go, until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of she who conceived me. But I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until she pleases. Again, she now then seeks out the bridegroom, finds and embraces, and yet are sent away. Continuing in chapter three, then in verse six, really through the end of verse four, chapter four, we see that the bride and the bridegroom are brought together again. And here they are united in marriage. And this is the central theme of the book that the love, the desire, the affection, and the zeal for one another comes together in a beautiful union where they are married and all the love is consummated. He says in verse 6 of chapter 3, What is coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of merchants? Behold, it's the litter of Solomon. All around it are sixty men and some mighty men of Israel. All of them were in swords and expert in war. Each one his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seats of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So Solomon here comes, this extolled and glorious virgin of this shepherd boy we've seen so far, comes to marry the young woman in the story. And they are brought together. Solomon then in chapter 4 admires the beauty of the bride and he goes on and on in something called a wasif about the beauty and praising his wife's body, love, and intimacy. This carries on into chapter 5 and we see that the setting of this new union is that of a garden. She says at the end of 4, let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruit. You can see adults how this is suggestive But also on another level, we see how it is prophetic. Verse verse 1 of chapter 5 says, I came to my garden, my sister, which is what they called their wives, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love well the powerful and blushing imagery notwithstanding we see that the bride and bridegroom have come to consummate their union together in this garden after their wedding but it goes on in chapter 5 through chapter 7 that the couple's continue to desire one another they they don't give up the chase after they've been married they don't simply move on with their lives no they continue in their pursuit of one another again over and over again we see the pursuit the seeking the finding the embracing the praising And then again, the separating that characterized their betrothal before. The couple desire each other. They come, they embrace in the garden where love and beauty are praised. And then they go and they continue to pursue one another in love. And then near the end of the book, we see in chapter 7, verses 11 through 8 4, that the bride begins to talk about her husband as she desires him, praising him for who he is and what he's become. It says in verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at, at Baal hamon He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring forth its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and keepers of the, true, of the fruit for two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. He seeks sure. And the language here is one of procreation, one of fruitfulness as this marriage begins to fulfill its God-ordered design to have children. And so the bride celebrates the fruitfulness of both her womb, her garden, her vineyard at the hand of her husband. And we end again as we began, this expression of mutual love, satisfaction and desire for one another. There in chapter 8 and verse 5. Who was that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes of fires, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. There's the reference. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so this is a a celebration, again, of the seal of love on this couple. The desire and the mutual love they have for one another. Well, again, as briefly as I could, that was the overview there of the book. There's a central question we said that was asked by and answered by this book. What is love? What does biblical love look like? And what does it consist of? We see here that the celebration of love consists of a mutual desire and delight in one another. Both the woman and the man seek and find one another. And we see that the love is celebrated not simply as a physical act, but as something spiritual, as the two become one. Remember, we read all of Scripture in light of the rest of Scripture. So we know that what is depicted here in the book of Solomon is what was referenced in Genesis that the man and the woman leave their parents, come together, and are joined together in this one flesh union. And of course, Paul tells us in the New Testament that that one flesh union is really a picture of Christ and his church. So in the plain reading of the text, we see that this man and woman who love one another are joined together in marriage and celebrate the physical intimacy that marriage alone may provide. But on the spiritual level, the symbolic level, we see exactly the kind of pursuit that God has for His people and His people must have for Him. And on the greater prophetic level, we see how we are to walk wisely in light of these truths. Particularly, I want to spend more time on that last element about how we are to read this in the context of its prophetic nature. What Solomon does is reach backwards to the garden, in that, in that garden in Genesis. We see the same temple and garden language there in Genesis as we do here, from chapter 4 and chapter 5, where the central part of the book takes place. The union of this couple takes place in a garden, and the imagery of fruitfulness abounds. Life, from the vegetation to the animals, are all of the same language that's existing in the garden in Genesis before the fall and the reason this language is here friends is in order to anticipate for us the fulfillment and the renewal that will come of God's revealed will not only can we look backwards into Genesis to see the language that keeps us in line with interpretation but we can look forward to Revelation and see the same language where the beloved comes to his church and where the church is celebrated and praise and through her praise Christ is glorified So we are going back to the garden in one sense and to the future garden in another. And again, this was set within the wisdom and poetic books. And so Song of Solomon is going to combine the features of both wisdom and poetry to point us in the direction that all of Scripture ultimately points, that is to Christ. And so this means that a key part or purpose of this book is that you may gain and grow in wisdom, specifically wisdom that enables you to navigate life in the fallen world, just like the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes was to do. Teach you wisdom in its own ways that you may navigate life in a fallen world. And this is why that first verse of the book places the song or the song of songs in the tradition of Solomon, who is wise and instructs us in wisdom. But remember, Proverbs has already linked wisdom and love together. So those who read the book of Song of Solomon It's not going to find this connection new. Consider the first nine verses, nine chapters of the book of Solomon, sorry, of the book of Proverbs was all about Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, as the father instructs the son to go and pursue wisdom, personified by this woman, and to avoid folly, personified by a woman. The one will lead to death, while the other leads to life. Well. For those who are astute readers will see that Proverbs 1 through 9 maps fairly well on the book of Song of, Sol- of the Song of Songs. Because wisdom, we see, is to be found in the Proverbs, just as one finds a good wife, later in chapter 18 and chapter 31 of Proverbs. Both wisdom and, and a wife in the Proverbs are called a favor from the Lord. So the connection between wisdom and love is already established within God's wisdom literature. The sage advises the youth in this Proverbs to obtain wisdom and to love and to embrace her, particularly in those first nine chapters in Proverbs 4. The youth is to say, wisdom, you are my sister, in Proverbs 7, 4, just as the beloved in the Song of Songs is called my sister in Song 4. It's precisely the link between this Love and wisdom that opens the Song of Songs to this this other level of understanding. So we know that there is a connection between wisdom and love in the wisdom literature. Let me give you a couple of specific examples of this. Consider Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 4, verses 5 through 9, we are told to acquire wisdom and to acquire understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that's wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is to acquire wisdom, and all with your acquiring to get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Consider then the Beloved in the Song of Songs, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so with my beloved young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. His left hand was under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Or later in Psalm 3, Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, and on the day of the gladness of his heart. We can see a clear parallel here between the wisdom, the pursuit of love and wisdom in Proverbs is that same pursuit gained and realized in this human relationship. But we also see, conversely, that the beloved is described in the language of the wayward woman, as well, this woman of folly. For in Proverbs 5.3, we see that the lips of the strange woman drip with honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in Song 4 we see, O bride, your lips drip with honey and fat are under your tongue. Proverbs 7 says, The strange woman, the foreign woman whose words are smooth, a man passes through the streets and takes the way to her house. Song 3 says, I arose and went in the city and the streets and squares and I sought the one my being loves. Proverbs 7, she grabs him and kisses him. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. I have found you. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloe, and cinnamon. We'll compare these verses with the beloved in Song of Songs. On my bed at night, I sought the one my being loves. I sought him, but I could not find him. But I found the one, and I grabbed him, and I did not let him go. Behold your beauty, my companion. Behold your beauty, my beloved. So lovely indeed, our couch is luxuriant. So we see in the wayward woman who seeks to lead someone down to Sheol is sought and is told to be avoided. But here in the Song of Solomon, there's a reversal where wisdom does the seeking to bring and to protect. So the language is still there. So the idea of Solomon who, who was to avoid the foolish woman and to seek wisdom, and the one who we see here pictured within the story of this loved one, is converted from a lover of many women, like Solomon indeed was, to a lover of one woman. And this is a bit of a reversal of the fall of Adam and Eve, a reversal of the disunion between Yahweh and Israel, a reversal of the way Solomon truly chose to live his life and what must have and should have been. So Lady Wisdom, who we met in Proverbs, is finally to be embraced by the son of David. Here we see in the Song of Solomon. For she is constantly searching for her lover, just as Lady Wisdom searches in Proverbs 1-9. through And we see this because it is the bride who is both initiative and dominant in her pursuit of the beloved. This is a female-dominated book. More than half of the book is the lady speaking, and only about 30% does the male speak. So we see that there's a clear parallel between the wisdom and the Proverbs personified by a woman, linked with love and pursuit, and here in the Song of Solomon. So we see in a prophetic sense that what God intends for us to read is not simply in the plain way between a human uh, human love story or necessarily even in a symbolic way that it's just between God and His people, but in a prophetic way that we are to be led and pursue wisdom that leads to salvation. That's the goal. So how do we do this? We must consider three things, and then we'll end. Consider how the Song of Solomon teaches us about the pursuit of love. Consider how it teaches us about the pursuit of love. Love is something to be desired and celebrated. Physical love, human love, the love which leads us to understand in greater depth and detail the love of God for His people, and the wisdom that love produces when it is pursued in a godly and biblical form. We see the pursuit of love is one which is to be earnest and diligent, that neither one of the parties here sits and waits for the other simply to come, but goes and pursues. There's a desire that drives the heart of the loved to the beloved. There's a cherishing and a desire that motivates one to seek the other. And this is true in all the senses in which we consider this morning. In our relationships, we know that we are motivated by a strong emotional bond, a drive to seek one another, not just in our marital relationships, but in every relationship we have, we are to be motivated to pursue one another in love. Even within the church, the body of Christ, we practice and pursue love as an example of what we see not only in the Song of Solomon, but in all of Scripture. The pursuit of love is diligent in that it does not simply receive love only, but shares love. The man and the woman in the Song of Solomon both please one another. They seek the pleasure and the delight of the other as they take delight in them themselves. So the pursuit of love is to be diligent, ardent, and full of affection. And it is what drives the motivation to love and to seek. And when we find, we embrace. And like the woman who finds her husband in the dream, we cling to one another in love. So the pursuit of love is very much to be the pursuit of our lives. Both in our own relationships, in our marriages, in our walk with the Lord, and in our attempt to seek wisdom. Pursue love diligently. But secondly, we can consider here in the Song of Solomon the pleasure of love. Because love is something to take delight in. It is something to be celebrated. Here we see that love is truly delightful. It's not hidden. The meaning meaning is rather clear for those who have eyes to hear, see and ears to hear. Love is celebrated in the Song of Solomon. It is not set aside. It is not hidden. It is there for all to read, see. Even those who do not know these couples celebrate. Those who come with Solomon to the wedding, the bridesmaids who celebrate the love of the bride, there are those who see visibly the pleasure of love And it is them who worship God. It says there in the beginning, in verse 4, We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will exalt and extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. May that be said of our love for those that we pursue. And our love of God. That others may see our ardent pleasure of love and say, Because they delight in God, rightly is God to be praised. Rightly do they love Him. There is a pursuit of love and a pleasure of love. But most importantly, what's displayed in the Song of Solomon is the power of love. And I don't mean this in a rom-com sort of fairy tale sense. What I mean is that love in Scripture and in the Song of Solomon has a power to reverse the curse of sin. The language and the effect of their coming together is a direct opposite and reversal of what we see happens in the garden once sin comes. They are removed from the garden after sin. But where is the husband and the wife gathered together to consummate their union? In a garden. What is the banner over this woman? It is his love. Although her desire after the garden was to rule over her husband. We see in the Song of Solomon that his desire is for her not his hers for his. So there's a reversal of the curse of sin and we see this future setting of what ultimately will be when God through love renews all things. We see the power of love working its way to renew and reverse the fallen nature of our world. And this power comes with an enduring commitment and reality. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13? That love among many things is eternal. Faith, hope, and love is the greatest of the gifts, but the greatest of all is love. For love will never fail nor end. Paul understood that the love of God is enduring. That it has the power to always continue. Even when our marriages, which will no longer be given to us in heaven the love with which we lead and pursue both in our marriages and in the world for one another will always endure because love comes from a motivation to seek and desire the glory and praise of God. And that's for what we were made. So if we acknowledge the pursuit of love, we acknowledge the pleasure of love, and we enjoy the power of love which reverses the curse of sin and and promises its enduring commitment in, in reality, What do we do? Then we set ourselves to not neglect the gift of wisdom and love. For each one of us was called to love and seek love. We were made for love. It's not a guarantee that we'll find love in a partnership in our marriage, but that we were made for love, and that all those who are made for love indeed can have their love fulfilled and know in God. For what does it mean to love? Simply to know and be known, intimately, with great familiarity. You have been given the opportunity and the gift of wisdom and love